All right, if you have a Bible with you, you want to turn to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, uh, chapter 36, in the vicinity of the Dry Bones passage, but not it. So I was on vacation a couple weeks ago, and I got a text from Bob Sloyer. He said, hey, he said, do you have, uh, he said, can you give me that moisture meter back that I gave you? I, I could use it here at church and, and elsewhere. And after a while, I texted him back. I'm like, was that for me, or did you mean for that to go to somewhere, someone else? I have no clue what you're talking about. And uh, he texted back, well, he said, I, remember I gave you that moisture meter to check the moisture in your basement? I've been having some uh, watery eyes the last year and a half. And, and, and these days, my uh, forgetter works far better than my rememberer, and so I was still kind of lost. I said, well, I'll check when I get home. So I got home, and I went out in my uh, shop, and uh, there on the top of my very orderly workbench, uh, was this. I, I had asked him, I said, well, what color is it? He goes, yellow, question mark, question mark. So I saw it sitting there, and I picked it up and looked at it, and I thought, ah, now I remember what happened. So I looked at the front of it. There's nine buttons on the front. And uh, I remember getting it from Bob, and the only one I was sure I knew what was was the green one. That's the on and off button. But there's eight other ones. Six of them are gray. One's lavender. I have no idea why. One's yellow. I have no idea why. The lavender one has a, the, uh, the letter H on it. Don't know what that means. The yellow one has a little symbol. It looks maybe like a light bulb. So maybe that's a light, dark place. Then there's a gray one that says DP and underneath WB. I, I didn't get any instruction book with this. Bob didn't sit me down and say, this is what this means, this is what that means. And here's, way, here's what I, the way I am with things I don't understand how they work. I'm done with them. <laughs> My wife insists that the instructions would help, but I'm, I'm not convinced of it. By the way, there's one on here. This is a moisture measure, right? There's one on here that says centigrade slash Fahrenheit. I'm pretty sure that's temperature, not humidity, right? Anyway, it was a real problem for me. I, needless to say, I never used it. I did give it back to Bob on Monday, and then uh, a couple hours later I said, hey, by the way, can I have that Sunday for a sermon illustration? <laughs> I got it right back. So I'll probably have it for another six months. No, I won't, Bob. I'll give it to you today. Here's the thing that I thought about. If we have something that we own or a gift that's been given to us, it's useful only to the degree that we know how it works and we know how to use it. It's useful only to the degree that we know how it works and we know how to, how to use it. And we're going to start a series on a study today on the Holy Spirit. And I wonder how many of us would say, you know, when I think about the Holy Spirit, I, I, I can tick off a number of things that I know about the Holy Spirit and uh, who he is and, and what he's supposed to do. But truth be told, I really don't have a clue how he works in my life or can work in my life. And I wonder how many of us think of it more. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a truth to be believed rather than a helper for us that we've received from God. 
And today's going to primarily be uh, introductory. We're going to spend five weeks on this. Uh, but to help us move from the idea of simply a truth to be believed, I'm going to ask you eight questions this morning to kind of think, think about as we go through this and to ask yourself, are any of these things true about me? Because if any of them or a number of them are true about you, it may be that what's missing is the work of the Holy Spirit in that particular area of your life. First one, are you spiritually dry or feel your love for God has grown cold? Do you feel like you're spiritually dry or put another way that your love for God has grown cold? Second, do you find that you snap at family members, just very irritated at them, or maybe colleagues at work or classmates? Do you find that you snap at family members? Three, do you lack enthusiasm for the gospel? Do you lack enthusiasm for the gospel? Now, we call ourselves here at Keystone a gospel-centered church. You'll find it on our sign that we're a gospel-centered church of the Evangelical Free Church of America. Because of that, we talk about the gospel a lot. On any given Sunday, you probably can go home and say, I heard the gospel mentioned 20 times at the service. And that may irritate you. Now, we were with some friends a couple of weeks ago that we hadn't seen for a very long time. They live uh, on the West Coast. But they were very um, good friends early in our marriage and um, had been, both been radically saved at about 20 years old. And I remember the night they went home. They were at our house for a meal for the evening. I remember they went home and I said to Betty, can't they talk about anything but Jesus? Now, I didn't know it at the time, but the reason that I was irritated about their talking about Jesus all the time was I wasn't saved. I was in a church. I was doing a lot of stuff in the church. I went to church regularly, but I wasn't saved. Now, that may not be the issue with you, but it should be a gut check if we find that we are really lacking enthusiasm for the gospel. And on a maybe a related question would be, do I find myself unwilling to talk to people about Jesus? I'm not talking about the innate fear that we have. You know, it's just a scary thing to do, and we're worried about the questions they might ask us and so forth, but I'm talking about an unwillingness. I don't even want to be empowered to do it. I don't want to even have the fears go away. I'm unwilling to talk to people about Jesus. Fourth question. Do you find that joy is mostly absent in your life? Does it seem like joy is absent in your life? Your life is filled with more worry and fears and concerns and maybe bitterness and unforgiveness and um, you just wonder where life is going. Joy seems to be absent. Fifth, does serving your church sound uninteresting? Does serving body of Christ, your, your, your local fellowship, sound uninteresting? Sixth, do you find it hard to love people? Do you find it hard to love people? I'm not talking about that irregular person or the number of irregular people you have in your life that, you know, they just, they just grate on you, their personality or how they function or how they treat you. They're just, ugh. I'm talking about in general. Do you find it difficult to love people? Seven. 
you find that a, a certain sin habit has controlled you for a long time. You find that a certain sin habit has controlled you for a long time. And last but not least, is prayer a chore for you? And again, I don't mean that you, you, you struggle to find time to pray and, and that you forget to pray um, in, in times of need. I'm, it's just a chore that you'd really rather than not do. I think all of those, any of those questions that you have, you'd say, yes, that's me, or a number of them might to be, um, it's really important that God has you here this morning in these next, uh, next five weeks. He has something to say to you about a work of grace in you in the Holy, through the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel chapter 36, and it might surprise you that we're going to the Old Testament to begin our conversation about the Holy Spirit because after all, the Old Testament, um, God worked differently through the Holy Spirit than he does uh, in the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, you only got the Holy Spirit if you were a priest or a prophet or a king and you couldn't count on keeping him. God took, if you, you know, defamed the Lord enough, God take the Spirit from you and so he took the Spirit from King Saul and David was afraid God was gonna take the Spirit from him after his affair with Bathsheba came to light. He prayed in Psalm 51, don't take your Holy Spirit from me because he knew he needed the Holy Spirit to lead his people. Whereas in the New Covenant, people like you and I, if you're a Christian, we have been given the Holy Spirit when we came to Jesus Christ and we don't have to worry about him ever going in this life. And so why would we go to the Old Testament? The context here is that God is speaking to his people 600 years before Jesus came on the scene. They're not in Jerusalem. His people are not in Judea. They're in Babylon. Because as punishment, God has carted them off to Babylon. Babylonian army came in. They conquered Israel. They tore down the temple in Jerusalem. And the elite of Jewish society, they took back to Babylon. The politicians, the accountants, and all of the craftsmen, the people that would be of use to them in Babylon, they took back there. Now, don't think of captivity, which they were in. Don't think of that as in jail cells and handcuffs. They were uh, able to buy or build houses. They were able to start businesses and so forth. In Babylon, they could come and go as they pleased. They just couldn't go back to Palestine, back to Judea, back to their homeland. And God is speaking to them about a coming day, a day when everything's going to be put back the way it should be and the people are going to be back in the land and God will be their people again and he will guard them against idolatry and all the things that got them to Babylon in the first place. And he's going to prosper them. It's a beautiful picture, but it's not just a political or an economic picture. It's a picture of when the Messiah comes. And so it's a picture of what the, what's God's going to do regarding the Holy Spirit in the future in our day and not just 700 years from now. So listen to these words. God says this, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. And I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. I will put my spirit in you. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for who you are in our lives. We're, we're just a bunch of messed up, broken people that you have rescued. 
And we're still broken and messed up to some degree, but, but the key things have been put back together, and we're in, most of all, we're in right relationship with you again. We, we have been changed from enemies of yours to children of yours. We have been changed from adversaries to allies. We are changed from dead people to people who are alive. We're changed from condemned people to restored people who have a future. For that, we give you thanks and much praise. We love you. This morning, as we begin to have our conversation about the Holy Spirit, God, in us, I pray that you would give us um, understanding and the mind of Christ. I pray on the one hand that you would guard us against fears and, and guard us about, about concerns about where this might go. And on the other hand, that, 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 that we might have a biblically shaped and, and uh, constrained understanding of the Holy Spirit and might see the grandeur and the glory of the purpose for which you have given him to us. Pray against the enemy. He hates when we talk about you. He hates when we delight in you. He hates when we worship you. He hates when we find our help and our hope in you. And so we pray that you would muzzle him this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to go back and reread those couple of verses again. And I want us to look and focus on the initiating work of God. First, he says, I will. So there's the first um, thing he's going to do. I will give you a new heart. God's going to take the initiative. We're not going to have to try to kind of rep- uh, do some self-improvement and self-repair. I'm going to give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. There's the second initiative. I'm going to give you a new heart. going to put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart. There's the third initiative. I'm, I'm going to take out the problem heart that you have now that is resistant to me, that is determined to go its own way, and I'm going to give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you. There's the fourth initiative. So that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulation. And the reason I point that out is because God was at work in you long before you became a Christian. Did you know that? If you would go back and think about your B.C. life, your before life, uh, before Christ life, you might think about the times where um, something occurred to you that you had been doing for a long time that it suddenly occurred to you, this is probably not a good thing to do. And you think it's just because you had an aha moment. God was at work. You think about a conversation that somebody had with you about who you should be rather than who you are, and you think, oh, that was really neat that that person showed up in my life and had that conversation with with me. Make no mistake about it. God was at work. So much of what went on before we came to Jesus Christ was the initiative and the work of, of God drawing you to himself because in and of ourselves, we did not know that we were in need of help. How many of you have a three-year-old? All right, how many of you have had a three-year-old? Put your hand up. Yeah, a lot of you. We should pray for all of us. Three-year-olds are the epitome of uh, obliviousness. They just love life and enjoy life, and the things that they love, they can't figure out why you as their parents don't love them. So let's take, for example, the early days of very early spring, late winter. 
the last snow of the season. It comes down powdery, but it doesn't stay powdery long. It gets so wet, and soon there are puddles everywhere. And, of course, with all the cars and everything else, all that moisture gets, becomes dirty. And now we have mud puddles. And to a three-year-old, heaven has come down. And you see them out there stomping in that puddle like this and the mud's flying everywhere, up all over their clothes, all over their faces. Their hair is slicked down. They look like a mud cake. And you think as a parent, what has God wrought? And they think this is awesome. And you go out and begin to talk to them and they don't, they don't understand what your problem is. They don't see, even if they'd look in a mirror, they don't see themselves the way you might see them. And the same is true of every person on planet Earth before Christ. We don't see that we're bad. God says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, he says that the heart, and we all have a heart, that's kind of the root of our emotions and our thinking, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Now, our culture tells us that our heart is in inherently good and that we should all follow your heart. It's the hallmark theology of the day. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Don't do that because the Bible says we're bad. We are intrinsically bad. That's the reason that God has to put a new heart into us but we don't see we're like that three-year-old in the mud puddle we don't see any problem we don't see that we're bad and it would be bad enough if we were just bad but the bible says that there's something more than that we're also not just sick not just ill not just broken but we are actually dead Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that we are something we are blank in our transgressions and sins what goes in that blank we're dead we are in, in our own natural state, we are dead, spiritually dead. And so when God looks down through his telescope from heaven and he sees the people of the earth, he sees people who are not just sick and need a doctor, who are not just misguided and need a counselor, who are not just poor and need a stream of income, who are not just uneducated and, and, and need great wisdom. He sees people who are dead. And we need something other than all of those other people that might be of help to us or those things that might be of help. We need somebody who can raise the dead. That's the help that we need. And not just somebody who can raise the dead, but somebody who can keep us alive. Did you ever think about poor Lazarus when, God, uh, when Jesus raised him from the dead? Poor Lazarus died again. Who knows how many years later he went through it the second time. He didn't stay alive. Jairus' daughter, was, she died, and Jesus raised her back to life, and that poor girl died again somewhere down the road. We need somebody who can raise us to life and keep us alive spiritually and physically. We were in need of help even though we didn't know we needed help, and so God sent help to us anyway. Jesus came. 600 years before, God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to take that stony heart out of you and I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put my spirit in you. And the beginning of that was Jesus came. But he didn't stay long, did he? 
He only lived in planet Earth about 33 years, and he only ministered about three and a half years. Took these disciples, and he taught them and, and did all these things with them, and then all of a sudden he was gone. He was gone because he knew that they needed something else. Now, that might surprise you to say that Jesus knew the disciples and all of us needed somebody else, and yet that's Jesus' own words. John chapter 16, Jesus has this interesting conversation with his disciples shortly before he goes to the cross. John 16, we're going to begin at verse um, 7. And Jesus, again, talking to his disciples, he says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Note that. It's best for you that I go away. I'm sure the disciples didn't feel that. Best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. Your translation might say the counselor won't come. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Man, there's a lot to unpack there, but we don't have time this morning. We're going to just stick with verses 7 and 8. Now, imagine you're Peter or John or one of the disciples, and Jesus is telling you, it's best for you if I leave you. This is the one who has uh, walked with them for three years and coached them. He's taught them how to heal people. He's taught them how to cast out demons. He's taught them not to be afraid. He's taught them so much, and they need him there, don't they? Well, maybe they need someone else. Notice verse 8. And when he comes, meaning the Spirit, he will convict the Christians of their sins. Is that what it says? Yes? No? What's it say? Convict what? The world. Now, when the Bible, the New Testament speaks about the world, it's speaking about the people who are arrayed against God. Now, it's true that we are convicted about sin as Christians, but what Jesus was talking about this day was a work of the Holy Spirit before a person comes to Christ. Remember I said that, that the God's at work, God's at work all kinds of ways before you become a Christian, before you became a Christian, or if you're not a Christian yet, God's already at work in your life. You would be amazed. And I want to just quickly highlight three things that God, the Holy Spirit, does in the lives, a life of someone who is not yet a Christian. So he's, got, he's, he's pursuing this person by first convicting the world of its sin. So there was a time when all of us, and probably multiple times, where the Holy Spirit was nudging us and saying, that's not right. And you're not, not right. That's the first thing that he is up to in a life of unbeliever, convicting that person that they are sinners and they, they have a problem with that. But the second thing he does is then call us to, to Jesus. He woos us. He lures us. Listen, because we're dead in our transgressions and sins, we're not going to come to Jesus on our own. We're like, I don't, I don't need any. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says that 
He's calling, calls people to Jesus. And then because we are dead, we have to become alive. If we're going to respond to Jesus, we have to come to life first. Now, uh, just, just for the record, not all Christians are going to agree with the chronology that I'm about to give you, and that's okay. We can agree to disagree. But my understanding is if a person is dead in their transgressions and sins, they can't make themselves live again. God has to make that person live in order for them to be able, able to respond spiritually. And so Titus 3.5 says that God saved us not on the basis of works that we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved us by regeneration. That means to make live again. Regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. New birth. Somebody will say, you know, I, I said yes to Jesus and I was born again. I would say, I... I was born again, and then I said yes to Jesus because I was dead before. God had to make me live in order for me to be able to say yes. By the way, if you believe this, it will transform your worship because I brought nothing to the table. God went out and fetched me. Do you know what fetch means? So there's this conviction that takes place in the life of an unbeliever. There's this calling that takes place in the life of the unbeliever. There's regeneration. And then I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. Help was on the way. Jesus came first. But then he says, you need something. You disciples need someone more than me. J.D. Greer in his wonderful book, Jesus Continued, best book in the Holy Spirit that I know that's out there. He says, the Holy Spirit inside you is far better than Jesus beside you. You know, when Jesus was here on planet Earth, he was God. He still is God today. But he put some of his divine attributes on the shelf and didn't avail himself to them, including being able to be everywhere at once. And so if Jesus was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, he couldn't be on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. If Jesus is in Jerusalem, he, he can't be up at Nazareth. And so he's, he's going to send these disciples all over the world once he, gets out, once he goes back to heaven. They need, some, they need God who can go with them. So Jesus says, I'm going to go back to heaven. I'm going to send the Spirit, and he's the one that you really need for what I need from you in the years to come. And praise God, he did. He sent the Holy Spirit. The help is now here to stay for two reasons. And, and these, are main these are main generic categories. We could talk about so many things that the Holy Spirit does in our li lives and can do. We're going to talk about some of those things in the weeks ahead. But it's two big categories. The Holy Spirit is given to us for one, mission progress, and two, transformation progress. Mission progress and transformation progress. Now, a little rabbit trail before we dive into that. Some Christians say... I have Jesus in me. And some Christians say, I have the Holy Spirit in me. Who's right? Yes. Yes, both are right. Let me have you look quickly at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 17. For the Lord is the Spirit, and the Lord, L-O-R-D here, is a reference to Jesus. So I'm going to just add Jesus so it's uh, more clear for us. For the Lord Jesus is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
for the Lord Jesus is the Spirit. Verse 18, again. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus and the Lord, say it with me, Jesus, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him, like Jesus, as we are changed into his glorious image. And so even though Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to go away and send the Spirit back to you, really Jesus came back. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he is through the Holy Spirit living inside each believer that is here this morning. All right, let's talk about mission progress. This help of the Holy Spirit that is here to stay is here in part for mission progress. Let's go back to the beginning, Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early church. Verse 1, Acts 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. In other words, they're speaking in languages they don't know. They, 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 have it, they didn't have a parent who had a language that they taught them as they were growing up and, and they still remember it. Not like our missionaries that go to language school for one or two years nonstop to learn the language of the people group they're, they're ministering to. Excuse me. These, these people in a moment started speaking in a language they had never spoken in before. And the people at that time, of, sorry, verse 5, at that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. That's because they had come in from all over the world for the Feast of Pentecost. If you were a Jew and lived outside of Jerusalem, you always came into town for the main feasts of the year. And so they're there from everywhere. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. Well, these people who are talking are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia. They're from Phrygia, we're from Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God had done. So the manifestation here of the Spirit is visual, the, the, the tongues of flames. It's audible. They hear the sound of rushing wind. And, and it's audible in these languages that, that they're hearing being spoken, given the praises to God in, in so many different languages. Now, we all, if you know your Bible at all, you know that from this, Peter breaks out into this amazing sermon and there's amazing results. But I want to show you three things that take place here, or maybe we should say that a couple don't take place. The first one is that these amazing miracles of the Holy Spirit, the rushing wind, the flames of fire, the, the tongues. And by the way, we're going to get to tongues. Just on, it'll be several weeks till we get there. These amazing things were not ends in and of themselves. They opened the gate for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the first thing. These amazing works of the Holy Spirit opened the gate for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, 
It wasn't about the Holy Spirit. In other words, the sermon that Peter went on to preach was not a, a sermon series on the Holy Spirit. It was about the work that Jesus Christ had done. Let me take you back again to John chapter 16, that conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples shortly before he went to the cross. Verse 13, when the Spirit of truth, or the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's going to be one of our messages, talking about the Spirit's ministry and helping us understand God and his word and his work and his desires for us. The Spirit will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory, Jesus says, by telling you whatever he receives from me. In other words, the business of the Holy Spirit is not to make much of the Holy Spirit. The business of the Holy Spirit is to make much of Jesus Christ. The other thing that's interesting is all these people who were, who were the uh, recipients of the tongues of fire, who were speaking in tongues, it wasn't even about them. The Holy Spirit was not making much about them. He was making much about Jesus and what they were doing and what they were experiencing was pointing back to Jesus. And so Peter preaches this sermon and what was the results? 3,000 people get saved. I'd be happy if just one got saved in my preaching. Did you ever think about how odd it was that this guy preached this sermon with such incredible results. He was the same guy that less than two months before couldn't even talk about being affiliated with Jesus around a little campfire with some people that maybe there was nothing at stake. Maybe there was, but maybe there wasn't. And all of a sudden, he's preaching this incredible sermon in front of thousands of people that he knew would not be necessarily receptive to the message that he was going to preach. What in the world happened in a period of seven weeks? Peter before the Holy Spirit, Peter after the Holy Spirit. And on that day, when 3,000 got saved, it, 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 it broke open a tsunami in the Roman Empire for the next 300 years, the likes of which the world has never seen. In fact, by the, the year 300 AD, we're still about a decade plus away from when Christianity is, is made the official religion of the empire. And so for all those 300 years, essentially all that time, it was illegal to be a Christian. Or at least you were frowned upon at the very least, even when the times were relatively good. During those 300 years, if you were lucky, you were persecuted. If you were unlucky, you were executed. And the, the, the gospel spread like wildfire despite the fact that there was no marketing campaign. They, they had no, no centralized power structure. Uh, there was plenty of opposition. They didn't have an army like Muhammad and Islam had to try to force conversions. And by about 300 A.D., they, they, Christians constituted about a tenth of the Roman Empire's population, somewhere 6 to 20 million people. How do you explain that? That people would get saved, their lives would be transformed, they'd be converted, they would, they, they, they would be... Uh, they would be discipled and then they would plant churches and, and those churches would plant other churches. How do you explain that? Was it just that 
the message was that super. Now it is. Jesus Christ died and rose again to save sinners like me. That is an amazing message. Simple. Not easy, though. Uh, one, I don't know who it was, but one of the, our people who was at the seat uh, up at uh, New York City a couple of weeks ago at a seed week, and they went out and hit the streets to share the good news, talked with a Muslim woman who said, oh, you're one of those Christians. You, you want to get to God the easy way. Yes, that's what grace is to her. You don't have to bow down five times a day toward Mecca and pray. You don't have to make a pilgrimage. You don't have to give alms. You, you, you just lean on Christ's work. And so, yeah, the, the message was super. But was that, is that all that was needed to explain what happened in 300 years? Could it be that it was not just, a, just about the message but because the messengers were supercharged. It is best for you if I go away so that he comes. Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Right before Jesus went back to heaven, he said this to his disciples. Literally last verse before he ascended. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. But stay here. Make sure you don't go off on your own. Make sure you don't go out here and try to minister without the Holy Spirit. If we want to see progress in mission, it's going to require the Holy Spirit. We had Andy up here this morning, and we have these missionaries around the world that we support. Make no mistake about it. Their, their work is dependent on the Holy Spirit in their lives, and it's dependent upon our releasing the Holy Spirit in their lives through prayer. We're going to be touching on prayer a lot these next few weeks. Progress and mission. Let me talk briefly about transformation progress. Again, back to Ezekiel, verse 27 says, I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to make a difference in your life, who you are, what you accomplish, and the person you, you become. And I wonder, back to the questions that I asked at the beginning, I wonder how many of us are trying to live the Christian life in our own power. Can you imagine being a lumberjack and going out into the north woods and you have a quota to cut down, let's say, four trees today and do all the trimmings on them? And you try to do that only by this, the edge of your hand. That's hilarious. Why? Because we need a chainsaw if we're going to get any work done. And the same is true in the Christian life. How many of us are going like this throughout our lives and God's like, I, I, I gave you the spirit. You can cut down far more trees than you ever would imagine with my Holy Spirit. Stop beating up your hand and stop accomplishing nothing. 
Augustine said, without the Spirit, we can neither love God nor keep his commandments. And for these five weeks, I hope to help us, myself included, rediscover this supernatural gift that we have been given and the purposes for which he was given and the power that is included in his life and ministry in us. I want to have uh, our worship team come back up here again. Uh, We're going to have a time of reflection at the end of the message. But let me just, I'm going to ask you these eight questions all over again for you to think about. And then we'll look at one scripture and wrap up. Are you spiritually dry? Or feel like your love for the Lord has grown cold? Two, do you snap at family members or people around you? You're just always on edge and kind of reacting to everything. Do you lack enthusiasm for the gospel? And maybe one way that that shows up is an unwillingness that you have to talk about Jesus to people. Four, is joy mostly absent in your life? Five, does serving your church fellowship sound uninteresting? Six, do you find it hard to love people? Seven, has a certain sin habit controlled you for a long time? And lastly, is prayer a chore for you? Let me read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, part of verse 18. It says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Maybe some of you just need that this morning. I don't know. And then he contrasts that kind of external control with this kind of external control. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer said, the, the Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. The Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. You know, tragically, some of what the church believes has filtered its way into the church, perhaps, perhaps in a big way, because it is widely believed that who you become and what you accomplish rides on what you do. Who you become and what you accomplish depends on what you do. The biblical view is that who you are becoming and what you are accomplishing rides on what the Holy Spirit does through you. What the Holy Spirit does through you. Just a couple of minutes while the band plays quietly in the background, I'd just like you to bow your heads and just talk to the Lord. If, if one of these questions triggered something in your mind, say, really, man, I am just an abject failure in this part of my life, or I, my heart is just, it feels crusty and hard, and I, I find myself irritated at my family members all the time, or I just don't have love for people. I just want to be, I want to be a hermit. I don't want to be around people. The gospel annoys me and annoys me, and Pastor Brandon and Pastor Keith and others talk about the gospel all the time. If some of those things generated some real heart reaction to you, maybe you need to do some business with God. Say, God, I don't know what's going on. I just know I need a fresh work of grace in my life. I need the Holy Spirit to work in my life in a way I can. Help me, Lord. 
If you just cry out, help me, Lord. God is a generous, loving God. He wants to answer his people's prayers. You just talk to the Lord right now. Father, thank you for hearing us. Thanks for the Holy Spirit that lives in each believer's life. I pray that these weeks that you would help me, that you would help us see the infinite power that is available in our lives. Maybe sometimes that we're oblivious to. And that these might be weeks of increasing, growing hope and more importantly, it might be a beginning of a work that never ends in our lives until we get home to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.